Caloundra City Private School is an independent, non-denominational school located in Pelican Waters on the Sunshine Coast. The mantra for our school is every student matters. We aim for every child to be confident, resilient, organised, persistent and social in all aspects of their lives in and out of the classroom. This podcast series is designed to share valuable insights from academic leaders on current educational research and perspectives, as we all strive to help our young people reach their potential in today's ever-changing world. In this episode, I continue my discussion with Associate Professor Michael Nagel from the University of the Sunshine Coast as he shares his research on the role of technology in modern education. Professor Nagel, I'd like to move on now to the topic of technology in schools. There's been a great deal of research and discussion on the topic, as you know, um, particularly in terms of screen time and the role of technology in the classroom. We've all heard about the negative impacts of too much screen time and so on, but what is the latest research telling us about the impact of technology on teenagers and their learning? Well, I think um, what we're seeing, as you mentioned, there are a lot of studies that are saying we need to be very cautious about about the amount of time that teenagers spend on screens. Um, We know that screens are um, adding to disrupting sleep patterns. Um, We know that they aren't the panacea for learning that a lot of people say they might be. For all intents and purposes, they're a device, they're they're a tool that if teachers know how to use and parents know how to use well, um, that students and children can get a lot from. Ironically, um, we also know that um, most of the evidence says to date, we still don't know how to use technology well in terms of learning. Uh, We're learning still how to do that. And I think part of the problem with that, or part of the reason for that is that technology has changed so markedly in a very short time. And so we haven't had a great deal of opportunity to use particular things to see what the long-term implications are because it changes so rapidly. Um, If you think of an iPhone, I mean, an iPhone has only been around for a very short time. But that is a computer in the hand that young people today hold. Uh, 15 years ago, it was a laptop. 20 years ago, it was a desktop. And things changed so rapidly that we really haven't got a good handle on how well to use technology. We're still learning. What is too much screen time, in your opinion? Well, okay, so if if you look at the American Pediatric Association says that children from zero to two should have no screen time whatsoever. After two to about 10 or 12 years of age, they recommend about two hours a week okay and then beyond that it has to be mediated depending upon needs and and assessment but i there are some researchers who suggest that probably when you start hitting adolescence probably no more than five five to six hours weekly if children watch screens more than that consume more than that what impact does that have on them Again, it's one of those things that it, most of this research that's available is not about causation, it's not about things causing. So you have to look at uh, a number of studies across a number of disciplines and say, well, what, what do we see going on? Um, ostensibly, we see negative impact on, on behavior, on sleep patterns, on engagement with, with the, the real world. And we find a number of studies that say that, you know, that if you have a disproportionate amount of time on screen, it can have a negative impact on your social emotional development. Um, cognitive development is a little bit harder, harder to measure, but certainly in, in how you engage with the world. Uh, there are some studies that say, look, too much time on screen is not as beneficial as some might think. If we break down a teenager's screen diet, if you like, in any given day they may consume television programs, learning apps, military games, drawing games, and of course social media. 
Is there such a thing as a healthy choice? Um, <laughs> you know, the one of the things I think what parents should know is that you can probably separate television from all other screens because the nature of the screen is very different, as is the nature of engagement. Uh, television is a fairly passive enterprise for the most part, regardless of what you're watching. Um, the other devices that young people use, whether they're gaming or phones, or whatever, re re require a level of engagement or interaction that varies. And, and that's the part of um, technology that we really don't know a great deal about. And it's important too, I think, for your listeners to understand, I'm not anti-technology per se, uh, and sometimes I'm often critiqued for being that or being a Luddite, you know, a dinosaur. I, I just think that it's important that we look at what, um, what the evidence says. My, my whole view uh, when it comes to child development learning is anything we do to and with children should be based on the best available evidence. And the best available evidence suggests that we should be very cautious about how much time or how much investment we put in ensuring that children are on screens um, because they spend a great deal of time socially on there of their own volition. And so do we want to exacerbate the number of hours of playing a screen by having them do too much on screens? If a student uses a screen in the classroom, for example, there's often this great desire to not give up the screen in the classroom or at home. Mm -hmm. How do you manage that as a parent, if you like? Well, there's two things. I think from the very outset, you have to start in the early stages. You, you can't invoke a set of guidelines with a 15-year-old if you haven't been doing it since they were five. So if you are going to have technology and you want your children to use it responsibly, you have to have guidelines, you have to set up parameters, and you have to be consistent across time, whether they're five, 10, or 15. And the other thing is really important is you have to model the behavior you expect. If you have your phone at the dinner table and the phone goes off and you answer it, why would you expect a child to do anything differently? So whatever rules and boundaries you're going to set up, you do it early in life, you're consistent, and you model that behavior. Otherwise, you wouldn't expect a 15-year-old to do something that you want them to do if you're not showing them how. That's an excellent point. Um, in terms of screen consumption, and I'm generalizing here, but many boys today tend to engage heavily with video games. Mm. Is this increased use of technology linked to the increased impulsivity and distractedness that you've identified? There are some, there is some evidence and some studies that suggest that one of the uh, things that happens with screens because of their interactivity and because, you know, when you look at a web page or anything, there's often many things going on simultaneously. And it's interesting because the human brain can actually only attend to one thing at a time. It's a bit of a misnomer, the multitasking, where people think you're doing multiple things simultaneously. With the exception, perhaps, of you know, walking and chewing bubblegum, um, most of the time when you're trying to focus on something or attend something, the brain can only do one thing at a time. This is why you know, using a mobile phone while you're in your car is highly problematic, because the minute you attend to the phone, you're shifting your attention away from driving. And so there is evidence to suggest that if you spend a disproportionate amount of time on screens, you might be training your brain to work in a particular sort of way, so that when you step in a classroom where you're asking to have a focused attention on a particular person or individual or thing that's going on, you struggle to do that. Um, and again, it's one of those things that is relatively new in the research literature about does it impact on impulsivity? Does it, does it negatively add to impulsivity? And preliminary studies suggest it does. It does because of the nature of the beast, such that a screen is not something passive, as passive, say, as a book, you know, where it's very focused. There are many things going on simultaneously which asks you to shift your attention rapidly and try to come back to a focus is often quite difficult. Is the effect the same on boys and girls? Predominantly, but as you mentioned earlier, what we see in, with technology is girls typically are still using technology by and large for social media, for social gathering. Boys are using it for gaming. 
with the exception maybe now of the new fad of Pokemon Go, <laughs> where it seems that there's no gender separation there. I've seen boys and girls walking through parks <laughs> quite voraciously looking for augmented realities. But um, so there is a difference in what they're engaging with, which theoretically will impact on how they engage with it. You talked about Pokemon Go. There is almost an addictive nature to using screens. Where does this come from in the human brain? Well, it comes from, it actually, it's a product of the human brain, but also the design of technology. Many of the games that young people use or, or engage with are actually designed um, under sort of gambling addiction tech, you know, research. So we know, for example, that um, a powerful neurotransmitter in the brain called dopamine um, is a, it's an excitatory chemical. So if you're driving in your car, for example, and you hear a, a, a song that elicits a real positive emotional response, it can elevate dopamine 9%, and you feel pretty good. What games do is they give you that same sort of initial buzz, you know, a, a dopamine chain. So when you're playing a game and, and you achieve a certain level or score, it's exciting. It, you feel good doing it. And you see young people in the, out in the park playing Pokemon Go and you can see the smiles on their faces. They're elated. They're uh, this level of excitement. And game, good game design, and when I say good game design, I'm not talking about uh, positive benefit, but people who design games really well uh, engage those people so they stay on the game. You know, and they, and they keep playing the game. There's a dependency that exists when you, when you excite dopamine levels. And so if you do that really well, you can certainly hook people on games for extended periods of time. And, you know, a year ago, there's a manual that um, psychiatrists and psychologists use that look at um, mental health um, uh, conditions. You know, so uh, it's the diagnostic manual. And we, uh, about a year ago, internet addiction was put in this manual as a, as a true uh, mental health concern along the same lines as gambling addiction, uh, alcohol addiction, um, because if, when you spend a great proportion of time on the internet, you get the same sort of buzz, the same sort of feeling you might get from those other addictions and actually can go through the same sorts of withdrawals. So there is a real addictive feature about screens um, that parents should be aware of if, the, if their children are engaged with it too much. How do you combat that? Again, it's about setting those, those guidelines and, and um, parameters early in life and ensuring that children are doing more than just gaming. You know, whether they be involved in various extracurricular activities or sporting activities, making sure that kids are involved in different things, not just uh, sitting in their room playing Xbox. So setting clear boundaries. Absolutely. Some students are becoming increasingly reluctant to want to take handwritten notes, preferring to type everything, getting back to the use of the screen where more traditional learning activities are perhaps undervalued. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Again, it, we've, we're seeing some really interesting studies. And, and I teach a course um, in educational psychology, ostensibly, and, and um, I show my students research evidence because I'd say, I said the same thing I said to you a moment ago, anything we do to and with children or students should be based on the best available evidence. And when I show them the evidence that tells us that when you are taking handwritten notes, you're actually engaging many different areas of the brain that you don't do when you're typing on a key keyboard. So we know that handwriting notes actually commits things to memory and a deeper level of learning than tapping on a keyboard. And it's those types of studies that people should have access to and, to and talk about. So we know that as you sit in front of a lecture theater or in a classroom and you're writing things by hand, you're committing more attention to the message and committing more to memory than if you're manipulating it on a screen. So with that in mind, how is technology best used in a classroom, in a school, to achieve a positive learning outcome? 
Well, I think I would refer back to a quote by Bill Gates himself who said, it's important to remember that technology is a tool. The motivation and how to use it is a responsibility of the teacher. And I think it's important for teachers probably to, if they want to engage with technology in a particular way, don't engage with technology for technology's sake. Find the evidence that says, if I use it in this particular way, there's some benefit. If you don't have that evidence, leave it alone. Professor Nagel, what's your view on the use of iPads in a primary school and also the benefits of using learning technologies in the earlier years? It's, that's a highly contentious issue and highly debatable issue. Um, you know, I know there are plenty of people who support the use of iPads. Um, again, as, as someone who's spent his career looking at how children develop and learn, uh, the evidence I've come across suggests that uh, the time spent on an iPad is, is time mis misused or, or underused where kids can be exploring and learning the world around them. And one of the things I think that's really interesting is that we tend, to, as I mentioned previously, we tend to cherry pick data and we look at things. You know, Australia now is talking about NAPLAN results and every couple of years we talk about PISA results which are international studies over the OECD countries looking at who does well in literacy, numeracy, science. And the last time the PISA results came out, Australia was ranked 14th. And of course, there was an uproar. We're, we're but lagging behind. So we look at countries like, um, or cities even, Shanghai, Hong Kong, South Korea, Japan, who top the charts. What's really interesting is that when we look at what they're doing, we should also look at what they're not doing. So in 2015, the OECD published a report, uh, Computers in Schools. And the general gist of the report, and I'm paraphrasing the director of education for the OECD, who basically said that to date, the use of computers in schools has shown no marked benefit in educational outcomes. And in fact, it might be creating more problems than it's worth. He was quick to say too, if you look at the countries that use computers the least in schools and at home for school benefit, uh, include Hong Kong, Shanghai, South Korea, Japan, Finland, the top five countries who do the best in literacy, numeracy, science. The country that uses the t computers the most is Australia. Australia uses computers in schools and at home more than any other country in the OECD in terms of total time commitment. Now, we rank 14th, um, and anyone can download that report from the OECD. Now, the interesting thing that the director is saying in the report says is that, by and large, Australia is actually, even though it's using more, it's actually doing not too badly in how they use it. But overall, the fundamental message is we have yet to really truly understand what is the best way to use a computer to enhance educational outcomes. We don't have enough evidence. We're still learning about that. And I think it goes back to um, what I said earlier. It's a work in progress. Uh, technology is with us. It's not the be all and end all. It's not a panacea for learning. It's a tool. And one other study that I think is really interesting, um, a couple of uh, professors that I know in the United States, uh, Kathy Hirsch-Pasek at Temple University and Roberta Golenkoff at Delaware, University of Delaware, did a fascinating study where they looked at 80,000 apps that were, that were self-proclaimed educational learning apps. Um, and because, you know, anyone can design an app and badge it. So these were apps that call themselves learning apps, educational apps that kids could download and use. And Ostensibly what they said, of the 80,000 apps they, they looked at, uh, less than 5% had any educative value in terms of learning. If you look at pillars of learning, the science of learning, and they said most of them amounted to more, nothing more than digital candy. Uh, kids engaged with it, they got hooked on it, they got hyper, they got, but it was really not doing anything for them. And like the OECD report, they were saying, we have no critique of apps per se and using apps, is that we have to design technology and apps 
based on pillars of learning and science of learning, not on uh, pure enjoyment or entertainment. There has to be a foundation for learning that support these. And we're starting to do that. We're getting better at that. I have colleagues at my university that are looking at le you know, science of learning as a formation for devices. Uh, to date, we just haven't been very good at it. What's your opinion on coding? You know, it's interesting because I've heard people say, well, if you teach a child how to code, that helps uh, develop their metacognition, their, their cognitive activity. And the question I have is, in teaching a child to code, does that actually supplant or is that better than teaching them to do something else that doesn't require the financial resources uh, for the coding? Are there things that they can do with pens and paper and pencils that, that have the same outcome? Because unless you can demonstrate a, a huge benefit, the expense doesn't, doesn't match up. And in terms of children's metacognition, you know, metacognition improves with age. We get better at thinking about abstract thoughts and about thinking about what other people are thinking as we grow older. And so while it might enhance metacognition in some way or some aspect, kind of, a, is it actually better than some of the things we've done historically? I haven't, I haven't seen any evidence to convince me that it is. So are you suggesting that we should move away from technology perhaps and resume more of a traditional style of learning? Well, it's, it's interesting because what I'm about to say again, some people say I'm a bit of a Luddite, but I think if people consider the fact that the very technology they're holding in their hands, that they're using, is a product of an education system that had no technology. The very creative minds that have developed iPads, iPhones, computers, the recorder that we're using now, uh, came from an era of people who got out, explained, explored, played, and learned in a particular sort of way. So I don't think we should throw the baby out with the bathwater, but I also don't think we should be jumping on the computer bandwagon saying this is going to revolutionize the world. I, I just don't see it. Let's uh, finish up today by looking to the future. What direction should technology take from your research and in your, your opinion, where should we go from here? I think the most important thing is to, for teachers and parents like, you know, again, it, it sounds paradoxical, but I would say they need to engage with the technology. Look for the research, look for the evidence, and look for opportunities to use technology that are beneficial. There are plenty of people out there who are doing just that. They're looking for beneficial ways to use technology. I think what parents should be thinking about, and teachers, again, it comes back to, if someone is uh, purporting to use something for a particular benefit, you have to ask, what is the evidence? How is that supporting my child's learning or, and or their development? And if there isn't any evidence, again, leave it alone. Unless you have the evidence, just leave it alone. Professor Nagel, thanks for joining me today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And that concludes our two-part series with Associate Professor Michael Nagel from the University of the Sunshine Coast. We hope you found the discussion informative and educational. This podcast was produced by Tracy Burton, featuring music by Paul Cusick. Thanks to Dr Ricardo Simeone for his audio support. Thanks for listening.